Hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on this week's episode, we hear from Elvis and Cressy's co-founder, Cressy Wesling, on radical circular economy models for fashion SMEs. Understand your local waste landscape. It's much easier to form partnerships with people that are local to you that you have a chance to go and meet and really understand. The Mulberry team provides insight as to how and why they centred sustainable sourcing and design at London Fashion Week. Except that you might not be perfect, that you might not get it 100% correct first time, but actually it's really important to, to keep moving to progress and the idea that this is a perpetual work in progress. T-Mills Martin Drake then talks us through the company's ongoing expansion and why circular economy models can't be confined to just luxury brands. Isn't it kind of crazy how when you try and do the right thing, because it got more expensive, like the economy kind of punished us for trying to do the right thing, which seemed to us a bit bonkers. So what we had to do was find like new ways to make what we wanted to do economically viable. Our last interview is with Young Planet founder Jason Ash, a man on a mission to bring community-led models of reuse to life, saving resources while saving parents across the UK some cash. The circular economy sort of momentum has built enormously over the last six months, but it's usually in manufacturing and supply chains or FMCG or it's a big government group. What we offer is something, if you are a parent particularly, that you can do in your house today. So yes, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast, hosted today by EDIA's senior reporter, Sarah George. This is usually the part of the podcast where I'd introduce at least one other member of our four-strong editorial team. Um, the other members being content editor Matt Mace, insight editor James Everson, and the elusive content director Luke Nichols. But today, as I'm sure many listeners are, I am working from home in light of the current government advice on coronavirus. Although the ED team are all really lucky to have the capability to work remotely, it feels very odd not knowing when I'm going to see the guys again. Um, So anyway, I'm sat here in my living room in East Sussex in an attempt to provide some light relief and continued green inspiration in what is undeniably a really unsettled time. And as you probably guessed from my interruption, the theme of the episode today is the circular economy. And it might not seem like it, but it is timely, given that, so number one, it was Global Recycling Day this week. Um, Number two, the EU and Wales have both announced big policy changes around resources in the past few days. The EU in the form of its circular economy package and Wales in the form of a plastic phase out beginning 2021. And thirdly, but not not least, we're probably all thinking about overconsumption and resources a little bit at the moment, given the stockpiling situation. Um, but that's enough of my nattering because we've got four interviews to bring to you guys today. So let's crack on with our first one. And that's with Cressy Wesling, co-founder of B Corp certified luxury fashion SME. What a mouthful. Um, Elvis and Cressy. Great. So for the next part of our Sustainable Business Covered podcast um, this episode, I've taken a bit of an unusual trip. Normally when I'm out of the office for the day, it is in central London among the hustle and bustle, trying to get the last vegan sausage roll from Greg's if possible. Um, But today I am in peaceful Kent at the Elvis and Cressy workshop at Old Tong Mill. Um, And I'm Cressy, the co-founder 
um, of Elvis and Cressy, having had a look around um, at the processes um, that this small company uses to innovate its way out of waste um, and turn it into new luxury products. So thank you so much for having me. No, you're welcome. Um, and I'm, I will have written up about about the brand on the site, but for those who might not have read it or who haven't heard of you guys, could you give a brief overview of what you do, who you are, and when you were founded, and most importantly, why you guys decided to set up to do this. Um, so we started in about 2005, and that's because I came to the UK in 2004, and I was always really interested in waste, and I had a bit of free time when I first moved here, and I thought I would use that by exploring the waste situation in the UK. Uh, I think some tourists would go to Buckingham Palace. I definitely went to the British Library first to find out what the waste statistics were, mm -hmm. because this is before you could do that on Google. And then I went to the landfill sites to see what it looked like in real time. So in the year that I arrived, approximately 100 million tons went to landfill in the UK which was a shock to me because I thought, well, where's it going to go? You know, this is a small island that's very populated. And then when I went to landfills, I just became more devastated because so much of the material that I saw coming in was obviously wonderful in some way and definitely deserved a better life. And that's where I saw my first fire hose. After that, I had a chance meeting with the London Fire Brigade and spoke more about the fire hose and learned that they decommissioned between three and 10 tons a year. And instantly I was drawn to it. I went to Croydon where all hoses go to die. Basically, there's a team of people there who will repair them if they can or decommission them if they can't. And I just started bringing them home. And the, the mission was, how can we set up some kind of initiative to rescue all of London's hoses? That was the problem that uh, was at the, is, is still at the heart of Elvis and Cressy. Right. So we, you saw this big national problem and then you narrowed it down and picked a, yes. a focus to go from. Yes. I mean, at the time I was, I was in my 20s, there was no way that I was going to start tackling a hundred million ton a year problem. You know, that requires a lot of investment and a lot of equipment. But I, I, I knew that if I narrowed it down enough, we would be able to create something really spectacular. And the fire hose is already spectacular. It's a beautiful, wonderful material that's red that has this life-saving history, that has all these kinds of in, incredible industrial properties, and and yet it was going to landfill. Just because it couldn't be a hose anymore, to me, didn't mean it didn't have a better future. And that was that was what we set out to discover. What, what was the best possible future for decommissioned fire hose? And you guys can't see this, but what what was the answer to what is the best possible future. <laughs> the answer that was arrived at was, at was um, luxury goods. So we've got, in the, in the room that I'm sitting in, we've got belts, mm. uh, coasters, laptop stands, yeah, bags, um, wallets. bags, wallets. Yes, um, uh, yeah, you I name mean. it. If it can be made out of, out of leather and you'd buy it for someone as a gift, they're probably making it out of fire hoses here. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely. I mean, we did loads of research. We first thought of making roof tiles, but fire hose, if you leave it outside for 10 years, it will crack. And that's because of UV exposure. Uh, also, there isn't enough fire hose waste globally annually to have a sustainable roofing business. So it wouldn't have been a very good material with that respect. Also, it's not, it's not fireproof. So once there's no longer water running through it and it's not being used as a hose, it's actually flammable. So this would not have been a good idea. Or, you know, it's as flammable as most materials are. Um, 
so we we thought who else is using a similar kind of material how can we find out what is the best the best way to use this and we discovered that quite a few luxury brands are using well frankly lesser nitrile rubbers in their ranges and we thought that given that this material already exists and has such a beautiful history and provenance to it why can't we really do something spectacular in the luxury space this is again 2005 when um, I think the the best that any luxury company was doing for the environment or for from ethical perspective was achieving a C plus according to a WWF ranking system so this was way before a term like sustainable luxury mm-hmm. had any kind of uh, mass awareness mm-hmm. whether that be inside the companies themselves or or with the consumer mm. And then away from fire hoses for a minute, um, the main other material that you guys are using are leather offcuts. Yes. Um, And I know you guys are sourcing them from a number of big companies, including Burberry. Mm -hmm. Um, And given your success in forging that supply chain and the supply chain with the fire services in London, there might be other businesses listening, looking to sort of close the loop on some of their materials and start sourcing mm. um, differently. Could you share some of your, your learnings on that sourcing and partnership? Yes. Um, I mean, partnership is the best word there because we don't really have a supply chain. We have a network of partners and stakeholders. And it means that when you run out of material, you can't just order more. You have to really understand how their business works and when waste might be created. And I don't think there is a length to which we won't go in order to, in order to replace something, mm-hmm. let's say, that, that we simply don't need. So yes, the, there's the fire hose and the leather, but we make all of our own packaging from rescued material. We collect tea sacks from Clipper Tea and turn them into paper again and make those into envelopes and pouches and leaflets. Mm-hmm. And I, I basically think the best way to do it, and I've given this advice to lots of people over the years, is to understand your local waste landscape. It's much easier to form partnerships with people that are local to you that you have a chance to go and meet and really understand. So go to the local industrial estates, go to the local science parks, go to the local universities, um, even people who sell food, things like this. We're about to hear my dog binge drinking water. He he does this (laughs) twice a day and he's a very loud drinker. but you have to understand that about your local community. And I love going and look, peeking into skips and seeing what's there. And that definitely takes us into a lot of materials that maybe we wouldn't have learned about mm. and maybe wouldn't be able to capture, but at least it gave us a landscape of what wastes were available. And, and then we started thinking, how could we apply some creativity to this and some ingenuity to that? And what machines might be required? And is it dirty? And, you know, the whole series of challenges mm. that ensues after that. Mm. So it looks like a twofold approach. So analysing and understanding the materials and where they're coming from and the challenges and opportunities with that. And then just ultimately being creative. Yes. And understanding your needs. I mean, I think one of the, the funniest things that we do is that we obviously have to stuff our products like everyone else. Most people would use tissue paper and we reuse uh, newspapers that we find in the environment. I go to London a couple of days a week and I always sweep the train on the way home. I collect all of the Metro newspaper and the Evening Standard newspaper and I bring all of those back with us. And it's a very obvious and 
and I mean, it's an almost political form of rescue because I am walking past hundreds of people asking them if they're finished with their newspaper and that gives me the opportunity to talk to them about what we do. Lots of them find it hysterical. I've, I've been accused three times of um, setting up a racket for reselling free newspapers in Kent but it, it's a way to show that this is valuable material very very publicly and to make sure that it has a second life. Mm -hmm. Great. So that's that's great advice, I think, from this, the small business side of things. And we know that we have people reading from big, big businesses mm. um, as well. And I know you mentioned that when you first wanted to source leather, you were going out to the likes of luxury fashion brands, big car makers mm. that have a lot of these small offcuts. Mm. Um, so from from your big brand partners, what what benefits do they see of working um, with a company company like yours? What has the feedback been from from that side well certainly we have an amazing relationship with with Burberry and I think what's been fantastic for them is that obviously their head office is an hour away in London we've had a number of people we've had buses of their colleagues come to meet us and to see how we design and to see how we work and that's been a benefit because we we have a backwards design approach we're not thinking forwardly about trends we're thinking purely about rescue and how we can have the most possible uh, uh, impact, and it's a it's an it's a subversion of the luxury world, but it's a very important one given the climate catastrophe and all of the other challenges that we face. So there is an education piece for sure. There's an inspiration piece definitely. And there's something in what we do that appeals to most teams within these businesses, whether it be finance, design, marketing, and, 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 and certainly there's that, that, that exchange that happens. But I also think what's quite useful is that if we, just our sheer fact of existence, we're proving that this is possible and we're proving that it can be profitable, mm. is, 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 is a, an activism in a different way. You know, we're not campaigning for people to stop doing what they're doing. We're just showing them that it can be done in a much more positive way and in a much less damaging way. Um, in fact, I, you know, you could argue that we are uh, reversing damage in the, in, the way, in the way that we work. So I think that there's that as well. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just a very positive form of activism. Mm -hmm. And then I just wanted to, f to finish on, you mentioned there about this being profitable and increasingly popular and mm. you, you've talked about how the the business has has grown is this something you've seen particularly taking off um in in recent months so i'm sitting here in january in the middle of for what big retailers is sale season mm. that comes after now this new mini november mm. um sale season but at the same time um there have been stats showing that retailers have taken a hit mm. with people choosing um, less and better, choosing experiences over things. And I mm. saw that you guys' workshops up to Christmas yeah. were were pretty booked out. So is mm. this something you've seen personally in the past year or so? I, I, I can only say that we are definitely benefiting from a rise in consumer consciousness. When we started in 2005, people generally thought we were crazy. And we spent a lot of time explaining to people why we were doing what we were doing. We don't have to do that in most cases anymore. People immediately understand. We had an Australian fireman drop by last week who came in and and had a belt of ours that he bought 10 years ago and asked if we could personalize it for him by adding his brigade number in Australia. I spent an hour talking to him about what was going on there. The 
this kind of, uh, of catastrophe brings a huge amount of awareness to people in general about the kinds of actions we have to take if we want the world to be better. And we know that in the last three years, we've, we've just seen the company grow significantly because people want to be part of the rescue mission that we're on and they want to be part of the donations that we make. You know, 50% of the profits from Firehose go to the Firefighters Charity and from Leather they go to Barefoot where we train women as solar engineers. And I think that that, that is such a powerful narrative for people that, that now they really recognize and want to be involved in their life and want to be the, the handbag they carry you know, they want to carry a bag really with pride and with a story. And, and that's certainly something we can deliver. Great. Well, let's finish this segment on a high note. Thank you so much, Cressy. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you there to Cressy for her insight and for having me along to the mill for the chat. I'm sure you'll agree that she has a really refreshing outlook. She's posing circularity as an opportunity for innovation, not a burden or additional cost. And she's reframing that resource hierarchy which should go reduce, reuse, recycle, rather than the other way around. Our next interview is also very much along the luxury leather accessories line. So if you, like me, are a bit of a sustainable fashion geek, then you're in for a bit of a treat. Um, and even if you aren't, there are a lot of transferable insights here on sustainable sourcing and design and servitization models like resale and repair as well. The interview is with British fashion house Mulberry, which, after achieving carbon neutral status for its factories in Somerset, announced new initiatives around sustainable sourcing, design and consumption. And on the latter, its new Mulberry Exchange service allows customers to have their bags authenticated, appraised and resold in exchange for credit. Mulberry decided to launch this service using its platform at London Fashion Week out of its Bond Street store. And I was lucky enough when we were allowed outside to make a visit there and see some of the processes and products and to grab this exclusive interview. Enjoy. Great. So what better place for the next stop on our Circular Fashion podcast than, the, than London on the first day of London Fashion Week? Um, specifically, I'm here at the Mulberry store on New Bond Week to take a look at its new programme called Made to Last. Um, for those not familiar with Mulberry's work, they're already carbon neutral across their factory operations in the UK. Um, but this is an initiative to sort of bring some of that to life and bring it to the consumer facing part of the business. Um, so normally in here it's just a shopping experience, but we've got machines in and leather craftspeople in um, making up the, the iconic Portobello tote. Um, and here to, here to talk me through a bit about why the brand is doing that is Charlotte O'Sullivan, who's Mulberry's Global Marketing Director. How are you doing, Charlotte? I imagine it must be pretty hectic in here today. Terrific! It's been a great morning so far. So we're at day one at London Fashion Week. At, as you said, it's our Bond Street store. Uh, and this season we decided to do something slightly different. Um, in December last year, we launched our first 100% sustainable leather bag, the Portobello. And we had this extraordinary reception. Uh, it sold out in 48 hours online. And what was really interesting to us was it was, a, it was a, a new step in the sense of understanding how interested customers were in sustainable materials. This concept of made to last is something that's always really been at the, the heart of the brand. We're turning 50 next year. Um, but actually, when the business was started in 1971, our founders started the business with scraps from the local leather factory. Um, right. So this idea about care, about repair, and about um, making something that lasts for a very long time 
it's been uh, really a point of passion and company culture for, for nearly 50 years. So I think what we wanted to do over this three-day program of activity was to really bring that to life for our customers and allow them to see how do we source, how do we make, uh, how do we repair and how do we exchange. So when you came in, probably the first thing that you saw was um, people from our Somerset factories, uh, they're making the portobello in front of you. So um, we work with 500 craftspeople um, across two factories in Somerset and like you said, last year we became carbon neutral and actually this year we're going to achieve um, zero waste and landfill certification. So uh, the portobello I think is a great example of, uh, of kind of some of the fundamental principles. Uh, so first of all, uh, all the leather that we work with is a byproduct of food production. Um, second of all, in terms of traceability and, and the actual leathers that we work with, the majority of them come from uh, European farms, which have really high uh, quality in terms of traceability. And then um, I guess the third point is that we, we work with, um, for the Portobello, it's a gold standard leather. So uh, for spring summer 20s, 65% of our collection is coming from environmentally accredited tanneries. And our ambition is that by autumn winter 21, we will have 100% uh, of the leathers will be coming from uh, bronze, silver or gold. So for us, the Portobello is a terrific example of um, bringing all of those points that we've been focusing on for so many years um, together. And actually the idea that you can see that made in front of you. Uh, there are a couple of limited edition colors that you can get as well. And then. I guess the other, the other piece is, is really around, there's a launch of the M collection today, which is crafted from, a, from Econel, um, so regenerated nylon. And, and actually by autumn winter 20, we will have replaced all of the virgin nylon across our accessories collections with Econel. Um, the M collection is a, a hybrid of a BCI cotton and also Econel um, across a 16 piece collection. Well, I was going to ask you for a bit more about materials, but you've covered so much ground that I think I'd like to talk about that part about reusing the materials as well as sourcing them um, responsibly as, as well. I understand that you're also going to be launching an initiative called the Mulberry Exchange, um, which is all about reuse and restoration. Um, and we've seen a lot in this space, I think, in the past in the past few years specifically. I know some luxury brands have been offering this since they were founded, but we've been working, for example, with Farfetch on their um, brand restoration and retail platform. So I wanted to ask, sort of, why now and how will the exchange work? So, um, actually, I think the thing for us is the, the way that we see our, our Mulberry Exchange program is it's really an extension of some of the services that we've already had within the business for, for a very long time. So uh, we have a repair centre uh, within our Somerset Artisan Studios and actually there we keep uh, stocks of leathers and components going back 35 years. So this idea of repair has been something that we've really been passionate about nurturing for a very long time. Right. We've known, for, as you say, that there has always been a market for um, the retail of Mulberry goods. When we took a closer look, what we really noticed was that two things. First of all, um, some of the condition of the product wasn't, wasn't amazing. And second of all, that there was uh, sometimes a problem actually authenticating the product. So when we looked at that, we thought, okay, how could we, how could we support this circular economy? What can we do to, to take this further? To us, it seemed like a logical next step from our repairs program. So today, uh, what you see here is the launch of the Mulberry Exchange. Uh, customers can bring in their pre-loved Mulberry bags, will be authenticated and appraised, um, and they will get a Mulberry voucher, a gift voucher um, in return for their Mulberry product. And they also have the opportunity to purchase pre-loved Mulberry goods. So today it's in our Bond Street store, 
our original GS Corporate store and also it's launching in our, uh, one of our New York stores, Spring Street. That's great. I know a lot of these voucher schemes only let people buy new products, so people are like, well, what's the point? <laughs> Absolutely. No, freedom of choice here. Fantastic. Um, and I think we've covered a bit about how luxury fits into into the second-hand market, but what learnings from this would you give to maybe other luxury fashion brands or maybe even fashion brands that aren't um, in the luxury space and are maybe looking to get into sort of restoration, second-hand repair, customization? I mean, I think our approach has always been start with what you do. So for us, that made sense to really look at uh, leather goods. So leather goods, uh, leather accessories make up 90% of the business turnover. So for us, it was really clear that it had always been part of, of what the business did in terms of making with the responsible ethos. So the challenge we, we gave ourselves was, okay, what does the next generation of this look like? I think the second point was really about company culture. Um, it was something that was so warmly and immediately embraced by everyone within the business, from um, the teams in terms of the making, the repairs, the retail departments, everyone immediately saw the value and the opportunity. Um, I guess the third point for us was uh, accept that you might not be perfect, that you might not get it 100% correct first time, but actually it's really important to to keep moving to progress and uh, the idea that this is a perpetual work in progress. It sounds like there's some work in progress with the supplying and the material sourcing as well. So I wanted to ask a bit about how you guys work with suppliers to make that shift to sustainably authenticated leather and then what learnings from that you, you could perhaps offer to, to listeners. Yeah, I think the thing about it, a lot of the work in this space is it's such a collaboration. I mean, everything you see around us today is, is yes, it's something that we've been focused on in business, but it wouldn't be possible without really committed suppliers, without customers but you know supporting and being interested. So in terms of how we source our leathers, we really do a lot of, we work very closely with the um, tanneries in terms of ensuring the uh, environmental accreditation and this idea that actually uh, if they don't have that accreditation that, um, and often that's due because it's either a relatively new process or it can take you know between 9 and 12 months to actually achieve it. So our approach here is always work with those partners to help them achieve that rather than moving on and actually that means it's something that everyone can benefit from. Because then it creates like additionality, so Absolutely. another supplier that's working on it. Exactly. Right? And I think, I think obviously all of us would like to get a point in the not so distant future where we don't even have to talk about this, that actually it's a given that this is the way that we all conduct ourselves. But uh, I think we all got to look after the areas where we can lead um, and, and we can support each other. Great. Well, I'll be daydreaming of that until next London Fashion <laughs> Week, hopefully. Imagine when you don't need a specific exhibit on the side and this is all just part of the normal proceedings. I hope we will get there. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So for now, I'm going to go and have a look at some of the machinery and some of the bags and try not to blow all of my overdraft. So thank you very much, Charlotte, for your time. Thank you so much for coming. So thank you to the Mulberry team again for their time. And I'm sure we'll be hearing loads more from them about their circular economy initiatives in the coming months, um, given that their group sustainability manager, Rosie Wallacott, is actually one of our 30 under 30 class of 2020 members. And now the next interview I have for you is for anyone listening and asking, hang on, the luxury companies seem to be doing a lot of circular economy innovation here. Um, but what about those of us who are producing products at a lower price point or out of work just are not shopping luxury? As the IPCC said in its landmark report in 2018, rising to the scale of global challenges requires rapid, far-reaching, unprecedented changes in all aspects of society. 
that's not just the luxury aspect of society. To that end, we caught up with Martin Drake from T-Mill. And if you're a keen ED reader, you'll have seen that we've had T-Mill along a few times to our events and covered the, them a few times on our news website. They're a clothing manufacturer based on the Isle of Wight, which uses renewable energy to produce products made from organic and recycled materials, which can, in turn, be recycled at the end of their life cycle. Martin gives us some insight in this next interview as to why the business was founded using this model and how that same model, born from a need for innovation, is actually helping the business to grow exponentially. Good morning, how are you doing? Um, great, thanks Sarah, thanks for inviting me on. No, and thank you for taking the time. I appreciate that you guys must be um, busy with expansion at the moment. Yeah, there's, um, there's quite a lot of that going on at the moment. It's not, it's not, not too bad though, the type of... Um, the way that we build our factories is quite a lot of like technology involved and stuff, so there's quite a lot of time for you know cups of tea and stuff. So, well, so long as you're getting your your caffeine in. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I thought it would be nice to start for for people that maybe aren't so familiar with with the brand to give an overview of how how it's evolved since it was founded. So I've I've been told that you guys founded founded Timo and Rafanui in a in a garden shed. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, that. That's right. It's like, um, me and my brother. Um, I think like a lot of young people, we sort of like wanted to wanted to do something about this whole sustainability problem, and um, that started with us kind of thinking, why don't we just change the kind of stuff that we buy? Mm-hmm. So you know, we kind of you know, if we want to buy a t-shirt, whether we want to buy something made out of natural materials, not plastic, or renewable energy, not fossil fuels, and stuff that's made the right way, um, and also. That's accessible because sustainability should be kind of it's about everybody so it should be affordable and one of the things I think that's kind of like a fairly reasonable thing to want to do mm-hmm. one of the things that we realized straight away was it's like those kind of products didn't really exist so we decided that we would just start a business make our own great and then and then since then obviously you guys aren't aren't in a shed anymore no no yeah exactly yeah so um yeah, we. Uh, although, having said that, the good thing about starting in a garden shed and without any money was that, and on the Isle of Wight, we, we obviously didn't really know anything, which which was quite helpful because um, it made us, like a bit of naivety with the sustainability problem and a lack of resources, really quite a good um, environment because you have to be innovative and you have to think about new ways of doing things. And in our case, we waste for us was like it wasn't kind of like a csr problem it was like we, we couldn't afford it mm-hmm. we like we couldn't afford waste so we had to design it out and so yeah we, we started off we were like why don't we why don't we try and use like a organic materials and use renewables um and one of the things that happened when we started was we realized that every, when we tried to do the right thing everything got more expensive and i think that not many people talk about that actually um which surprised me sometimes isn't it kind of crazy how when you try and do the right thing, like when we tried to do the right thing as a business, um, because it got more expensive, like the economy kind of punished us for trying to do the right thing, which seemed to us a bit bonkers. So what we had to do was find like new ways to um, make what we wanted to do economically viable. Mm-hmm. And so we started making products. We, we basically found that technology would be a, a, a good way to find like new efficiencies in um, the kind of traditional supply chains um, because when we tried to kind of make a sustainable version of B 
business as usual. It, it, like I said, it just got more expensive. So we needed a new business model. And yeah, we, we started making um, started making products. What we do here, if I kind of fast forward 10 years or whatever, it's, um, I'm, I'm in fresh water on the Isle of Wight. Um, you said earlier I was looking out at the needles. Actually, I'm looking out at just a load of rain. But <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the factory is about as big as a football pitch. And what happens in here is products are made in... Um, in real time in the seconds after they're ordered. So if you ordered a t-shirt like now, it would be printed in the next couple of seconds and it would be with you tomorrow, but it wouldn't have existed until after you've ordered it. So that means we only make what people need when they need it. Mm. And um, so that, 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 that's an example of how we use or develop new types of technology that create massive efficiencies and, and reduce waste. And then what we do as a business is reinvest the proceeds from those efficiencies back into things like better materials or better energy. So um, everybody's better off, the business, the customer, and, and the environment too. And um, um, uh, in particular, I think the thing that we do, the, the, I think it's the coolest thing about the business is, um, you know, it's not just about reducing waste, like I described with making, with real-time production. Um, all, every product we've made from the start is designed to come back to us when we're worn out, and we use that material to make our new products. So um, what T-Mill is, I think, is a example of the fact, that, well, it's proof that the circular economy, it is possible to build a business that's fundamentally different and built on a circular model um, now. And on on that last point, I was I was going to ask about this because obviously circularity can't exist just as one business, right? It has to work um, in a system and to get those recycled materials you have to get people to get your their end of life t-shirts um, back to you so I was going to ask how you guys encourage getting that product back and what advice you've learned um, and maybe you could give to other brands that are looking at um, at take back or other other behavior change in fashion oh that's a good question yeah you nailed it with the first bit about systemic uh, thinking like the mistake that I think a lot of brands make is to think of themselves as just constrained by what's upstream and downstream. Right. So, you know, I, I, I can only sell what my supplier can make and I can um, I can only buy what my supplier can make and I can only sell what my consumers want. Whereas what we did is we never really thought like that. We just re- we just thought of ourselves as being responsible for the um, entire product life cycle. And... Um, looking at the product lifecycle as a connected system, and then just going around looking for positive solutions. So, so you know, um, if you're not happy with, in our case, if you're not happy with the factories that make T-shirts, build your own one. So we had to build our own factory. Um, and if you want people to send your material back to you, find a way to do that. Um, a lot of it's about the, fir- the most important thing is the first step of accepting that your material that you buy and, and where your product comes from, what it's made out of, and what happens to it when it's worn out is you're, you're accountable for that. And then actually, rather than seeing it as kind of like a sort of a problem, um, you can then, you can find some really cool solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, the, f- the first way that, in terms of other businesses, I should say like in between the sort of bit where we're in a shed and when we're here, and there, one of the things that surprised us was how s- there are a lot of businesses that actually do care about this kind of stuff. So a lot of our early growth came from other businesses um, that called us up and said, hey, uh, we want to try and engage our staff um, and try and teach them a bit about the circular economy or do some, actually do something about the circular economy. Maybe we could switch our like uniforms or like uh, the T-shirts that we give away at conferences or whatever to a circular products. Right. Could, you make us, could, you, could you make some for us? 
So there's actually quite a lot of big businesses, like um, Lloyds Bank has been one of them, um, and I'm really bad at remembering them all. Loads of really, really big um, um, businesses in the UK that use us for, like BBC, National Geographic, people like that, that use us to manufacture T-shirts for them. So, so um, I think at what will happen in future is that businesses like us kind of need to almost start from scratch and build new factories and new supply chains and stuff. But over the next few years, I'm sure that bigger businesses can partner with smaller, more innovative ones that can provide them solutions without having to reinvent the wheel. Mm. No, that brings on to what, what I was going going to ask. Something that bigger companies are now starting to grapple with is the fact that they've been putting out textile blends um, for many, many years while progress to develop recycling or reuse for them hasn't been um, that great. And I know that you guys had the opportunity to start and to create the loop um, for, for your products, really. So I was going to get your views on where you think... Um, broader progress could or should be made in, in recycling or even even before that reuse for fashion yeah. this year? Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the, the, the most important thing, circular economy is not just taking business as usual and then, like, it, like it's like a sphere and then painting a green layer on the outside of it and trying to add a circularity bit to it. You have to smash it open and fundamentally alter the inner workings of the business, which means not doing some stuff as well. And... And um, that means the mo- the, the, it, it doesn't work unless you design the product from the start to come back and be remade. So, so, um, so you can't like for us that means just using pure natural materials. If you mix stuff up together with plastic, um, it's kind of and then and then try and bring it back and do something with it. It's kind of like trying to take egg out of an omelet. Like it's already too late. So one of the most important steps for us was to think from the start. You know. Actually, when, when we started, we said we were going to take all of our materials back, but we didn't really know what we were going to do with it because we, we didn't know whether or not we could remake it. But in principle, if it's a pure material, it will be much easier to remake, so that's what we did. Um, so, yeah, that's really important. Um, all I'd say about reuse and, um, you know, um, uh, re- re- reduce and reuse, like, so there's a, there's, you know, there's a billion items clothing made every year, like three out of five T-shirts bought today will end up in landfill within 12 months. So that's a flow, like a pipe um, that puts, puts a you know a dump truck a second of textiles waste into landfill or incineration. So if you if you if you reduce waste or you or, or by you know by half, everyone buys half as much clothes, or you wear them for twice as long. Um, that's an, that's a good first step actually because it slows down that one dump truck a second. It's a dump, but it's a dump truck every two seconds. So um, it just it, it math, mathematically delays um, the inevitable outcome. If you if you if you're driving towards a cliff and you halve your speed, that's that's sensible. But you will go over the cliff eventually. So I think what circular design, true truly circular design does, is it fundamentally changes the outcome. It's not about slowing things down. It's about it's about changing the flow so that it doesn't go at a cliff. It, it comes back to the manufacturer and goes round. So there is no cliff. Mm. And and you've talked a bit there about sort of how business interest in this has really grown and is bubbling away under the surface. Um, and I wanted to to take it back to to the fact that those those statistics that you've just run through, I've known for a few years because I'm a bit of a geek <laughs> about sustainable fashion. 
Um, but I'm noticing that more and more people know these stats and are quoting them or they're wanting to read articles and books about them. Um, the government did an inquiry into the UK fashion industry. It seems like every week we're getting um, a new documentary or a new book about fashion um, and the environment. So I wanted to get your opinion on have you felt that shift in public awareness and opinion at, at your business? Um, it's hard to say really. I mean, there's two sides to this. There's the public opinion side and there's the business side. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that public opinion and business need to be, you need public opinion first before the business will change. But actually, the good thing about us, what we do when we recover waste is regardless of public opinion, this is what's so strong about the idea actually. It doesn't, it, it doesn't rely on public opinion. So if you are a business like us and you create a load of products that are made out of organic cotton, organic cotton costs you, you know, or, or natural materials, whatever, that costs you money. That's like one of your biggest expenses. Mm -hmm. Now, if I propose that you get that back and the customer comes back as well, which is good for you, and the material that you've got, you can remake into a new product so you don't have to buy any more. Actually, that's, um, that's better for your business, regardless of whether or not the public have forced you to do it. A good example would be, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday, you know, like when Royal Mail and stuff deliver parcels, um, they, they, it's, they, they take it from the depot, they drop it at your, at your house, and then they um, go back to the depot with an empty truck. And the circular economy is kind of like saying, why don't you give them something at your house to take back to the truck so that the truck is utilized on the inbound and the outbound journey? And once you, once you visualize that, that you're wasting all of this value on the half-empty truck going back home, so half the time a Royal Mail truck is just wasting an empty van. You can't, can't unsee it. So what we found with the circular economy is like, it's actually better for business. It's not like a, it's not like a CSR thing that kind of costs us more money, but people want it. It's, it's actually, it actually is good business because you reduce your costs and increase your productivity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the kind of like public sentiment, um, yeah, like when we first started, uh, we did this thing called with traceability where we had these maps. We put them on our website, like because uh, we we go like work on the farms and whatnot, um, where the raw material comes from, and we put all these pictures and stuff out on the internet and talked about where stuff came from and how it's made and who made it. And at the time, it was like whoa, traceability. And <laughs> now that's kind of like you know, everyone's like yeah, you know, but what's new? You know, it's like so, it's kind of almost like a minimum standard. And so I think that that is quite reassuring, like how far the conversation has come with the public. Um, but at the same time, the facts are that the waste uh, stream is not slowing down. It's mm. picking up. That's a fact. So, so, so that's because um, even a product that's made with more natural, more like more benign materials, or even if people are more conscientious and want products that are waste-free. It's not enough that the customer has the will to, uh, you know, just willing, having the will to be, uh, have a, a, a redesign our fashion system isn't enough. The customer actually needs a way. So what businesses need to do is design new business models and new um, products and new architectures that enable the public to convert their enthusiasm for these things into actual actionable change. And that's what Teamer is, basically. It's uh, something that you know, people with a will, they've got a way to do it, something people actually do about it. Great. Well, I don't think there's a better place to, to um, 
to end on a high note than than there. So systems change um, is is the cornerstone of of all of this essentially. Um, and yeah, just... I agree. I mean, um, and it's also the big. It's also an opportunity. It's not like something like oh, we have to do it as businesses. You know, um, circular economy is about designing out waste that costs businesses money. Um, so get rid, getting rid of costs sounds good, right? So um, this is a circular economy in my view. We've proven that you know we double in size each year. This is not, um, and, and we're built from the ground up on a circular model. So at a minimum, I think we've proven there is a there is a different way of operating, um, and it's good for business. So to me, that makes this kind of conversation about from a business's point of view, rather than being about responding to public pressure, it's definitely the system change is like the biggest opportunity for business ever hiding in plain sight. It's right in front of us. Well, there we go. There's some great food for thought, I think, for anyone that's listening in fashion um, fashion or beyond. But thank you so much for your time. Oh, no worries. So, yes, thank you there to Martin for dialing in. I'm slightly jealous that he gets to work to champion the circular economy while looking out at the needles while I'm stuck here looking at my neighbour's cat sat on top of her bin. But, hey, first world problems. We have just one more exclusive interview to bring to you this episode and you'll probably be glad to hear that it isn't exclusively about fashion. Aside from clothing, goods for children, from the practical necessities like their buggies and car seats to things like their toy lightsabers and their plush unicorns are products with all of which all of us can see as living, breathing examples of the linear economy. They're often designed for durability, sure, but they're typically used for just a few months or years as their users physically outgrow them or mentally grow tired of them. In a drive to solve this problem, Jason Ash created Young Planet, an app that lets parents and carers sell and donate unwanted children's items to one another locally. After a successful pilot in Hackney, where more than 2,000 people use the app more than 50,000 times collectively, Jason has successfully crowdfunded a UK-wide launch. And he's just a really interesting guy in general. He's, he's a dad himself, so he understands this problem firsthand. But he can also bring corporate experience from his past life at Mondelez, Cadbury, Unilever and Mars to the table. So without further ado, here is that interview with Jason in full. Great, so for our next stop on this circular economy roadshow, if you will, um, is in London, where I'm with Jason Ash, founder of Young Planet. Um, you might have heard of this if you have kids and or friends that are really obsessed with free cycling and upcycling. Um, it's an app which helps people keep kids' stuff out of landfills and out of downcycling and in reuse. So, Jason, how are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. No. To be here. no, thank you for coming on. I, I assume you're pretty busy after after piloting and was preparing for the, for the big launch. Yeah, very busy actually. So we had uh, a successful Crowdcube raise last year and uh, we're in the process of both updating the tech and launching further out from our Hackney base in London. So that's uh, that takes up most of our time. Mm-hmm. Great. And from, from the Hackney base, I know that, that the people that you're targeting really will be like parents, grandparents... Um, other people with kids but I wanted to ask what the uptakes like been like among that group and then in the future whether you're maybe looking at community groups or, or businesses as, as well. Yeah so most of our users as you rightly say Hackney was where we started um, we started trialling 18 months ago and we piled in last year uh, with actually sort of you know, focused marketing campaign 
95% uh, of parents directly. Uh, very interesting actually to talk to people in the tech world. Quite often they're not parents and, and it takes them a while to get what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen the pain in parents' eyes too often when we mention what we're doing and how useful the service is for them. So um, people see it as a, an opportunity to act uh, in a positive way against wastefulness, uh, so clearly keeping things out of landfill. Um, it's an impetus to declutter. The London households are the smallest they've been since the Second World War, according to statistics. Uh, free stuff, everybody likes free stuff, <laughs> so putting things on our platform, taking things off our platform is free to use and will always be safe. Um, the fourth element, which I think underpins all of it, and this is particularly an acute driver for parents, is this feeling that you can do something about the issues we all see and read about. Right. And it's great that we're reading about it more, and the word circular, the circular economy sort of momentum has built enormously over the last six months. But it's usually in manufacturing and supply chains or FMCG or it's a big government group. What we offer is something, you know, if you are a parent particularly, that you can do in your house today and actually enjoy it and have fun doing it and probably meet other people that are excited to be doing it as well. So mostly parents um, and there's plenty of parents in the UK to be after. So at the moment just the number. Great, and you talked you talked there interestingly about how a lot of the circular economy focus has been by businesses or by government groups, and we were just talking about how you have experience in that. So I wanted to to see sort of like why now, why make the shift, and why go into children's products yeah. specifically. Well, so I have three children, which focuses the mind a bit, um, but I, most of my career has been spent in what they call FMCG. Um, and quite recently actually I was involved in a, um, in a business that was working with the Scottish Government on the DRS, the Deposit Return Scheme right. System. And as I say, a lot, of, a lot of the industrial approach to this is in the supply chain. For us, um, we've moved around the world a number of times and, um, and actually we were, we were asked about this just before Christmas and it, a light bulb went off. We, the idea for Young Planet happened in about 2009 and we'd gone to, we were in New York, so we were living in New York at the time. We'd gone to a really sociable lunch in Montclair, New Jersey, and we went for a walk, as you do after a Sunday lunch. And um, the Americans had these, what they call garage sales, where everybody declutters, gets rid of stuff they no longer need, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and my oldest, who's now just turned 13, was I think just three at the time. And the there's this wonderful, great big, um, well not big, but big to a three-year-old, that sort of metal fire truck. Uh, it's got a, um, a radio flyer. It's like a, a pure Americana toy. And he fell in love with this thing and got on top of it and was to tooting away. And uh, I asked the guy how much did he want for it, and I think he asked for 30 bucks or something like that. And he saw Freddie playing with it and said, you know what, it's so nice to see it being used. I don't want any money for it. And, and that, I think that was a great selling technique because we ended up buying those other things from him. <laughs> but, but we didn't pay anything for the fire truck. And, um, and, and, and therein is the beginning of the idea that's become Young Planet that mm. launched properly last year. It, there is tremendous value in seeing things that still have utility, particularly when it's associated with your children, your family, or your memories being used by other people in your area or in the situation that you were in. And, and that, that's, that's basically how it came about. So my, my business career in finance and marketing in FMCG companies around the world is applied to what is you know, effectively a system my wife lives by, which is don't throw anything away. Hmm. And I presume with with kids' products as, as well, there might just be a quick turnover or a volume. We're seeing now like the startup 
petty plea that we talk to, it's kids' clothes that grow ten sizes, so kids just getting through things quicker yeah. by the nature of their age. Was was that a factor in the focus on kids' products? Huge, huge. So I've got three boys. My Again, moving around, people were very kind to us. Over half of Freddie's stuff was from other people because they do grow. They're sort of built-in obsolescence, and they've got an attention span like a gnat. So they, you know, they quite often play with a box more than they will the toy. Um, my middle one, three quarters of his stuff comes from other people, and the youngest doesn't know what packaging is. So I, children don't really care about status and money; they just want the stuff they want, and um, and it's in their nature to want more stuff. It, it's it's usually the system or the marketing structure, the commercial structure around them that encourages the want for things that are expensive, but there's just no need for it. Mm. But, but in obsolescence for children is a fact. So I think that the it was a, the Telegraph published a few years ago that the average child has 238 toys, but plays with 12 of them. And so, you know, 90% of what a child has doesn't get used. Our view is get that moving, and then get after the you know the balance of stuff that they're interested in. Mm. And you talked a bit there about how in the US there's sort of like yard sale, garage sale culture and that helps get things not thrown away or downcycled but reused and you yeah. sort of touched about how that isn't really the case in the UK and sort of beyond the existence of the yard sale I wanted to pick your brains into why you think we have that problem in the first place. Uh, there's an in- I think there's a difference in culture so I think a lot of the what the Americans call garage sales are about decluttering so they have a lot of stuff they want to monetize or get rid of. Um, for us, um, I don't know where we are on the journey from a sort of give it away, recycling, throw it away, repurpose it perspective. For me, and again, this is as much to do with my own skill set, I focus on what people want. And clearly, the costs of raising a child are exorbitant in this day and age. You know, there's, there's, there's some references in the press just recently, actually, that you're spending something in the region of £12,000 a year for the first four years of a child's life, which is, you know, that's a lot of money. Um, you know, partly there's a need from a cost, partly there's a need from a waste. So I'm not really sure where we are on the journey of that, but certainly there is a need for stuff that doesn't cost money, that is usable, and, and apart from anything else, it's common sense. And then I wanted to pick your brains a bit more about how Young Planet is essentially a tech-based um, solution to this problem, and we're seeing more of that come on. And as much as I don't see any more yard sales or garage sales, I know that um, Facebook Marketplace is doing very well. Um, we've worked with likes of like Vinted and Depop for reselling things. Even Selfridges is now starting to back yep. um, these kind of business. So I wanted to ask sort of where you think tech. Um, sits in as a solution to that problem given that you guys have a digital offering? Yeah, I mean we're fundamentally a tech platform uh, and we're about facilitating a community that aspires to these sorts of behaviours so you know, the, you know the, if you not to be too grandiose about it but the industrial revolution started with you know, what can we make and then in the advent you know, of the last century everyone started trying to work out what people wanted. I think the tech the, you know, the, the board on Amazon's head office says the internet is at step one. You know, again, everybody's focused on what it can do as opposed to what people want. And that, it's the same with sustainability as well. People are focused on the big ticket items. For me, right at the consumer end, children go through stuff very quickly. They don't use a lot of the stuff they've got. And, and there's a lot of waste inherent in raising children. So actually facilitating a community and encouraging people to consume, and that's the contradiction in us. We think it's in children's nature to want more. 
it's in parents' nature to want them to have what they want, you know, to give them what they want. Uh, we're about facilitating that, but just get rid of the 90% of stuff and get that stuff moving around the community so other children can use it. Tech facilitates that. Um, what, what the behaviours that we are encouraging exists in certain families through hand-me-downs. Tech can facilitate it street to street, community to community, and in some instances in the big ticket items, you know, from one end of the country to the other. It's interesting that you use the word community because people have like online community forums and social media was designed to yeah. be a community but in places like London where everyone's online and everyone's really busy I feel like sometimes there is that loss of that um, sense of community and when we went to the body shop for example yeah. last year I asked like why have you got events now in your new store and why have you got a refill station and they were like well it's as much about community experience as it is about sustainability so is that a narrative that you're seeing absolutely well? I mean some of the things some of the uh, we've had actually handwritten letters but some of the emails we cherish the most are from people that live perhaps one or two streets away from one another and if you think about this, if you're giving away a baby seat for a car onto the platform and somebody two streets away from you is requesting that and you're meeting, the likelihood is you've got you know, it's like a buddy system that begins and it's, you're talking in some cases yards away and, and London is a very anonymous place, you can get lost pretty quickly and so linking people in through these sort of family connections and buddy systems is a really, really rewarding part of what we do. And then just closing, we've been focused about Hackney and about London, but I've been told that there's a UK-wide launch coming yeah. later this year. So we, do we have any like locations or timescales, or is it all a bit top secret? No, not top secret at all. But I mean, we, what we want to do is ensure everybody has a really you know, top experience with the app and with our platform. Um, we've got a very dense usage pattern in Hackney. So it's actually, it's now over 9% of Hackney families are on the platform, which is astonishing. Um, we're building out in, in the boroughs around Hackney and actually venturing south of the river down to Wandsworth. So that'll be launching in the next month. And then we're going to push west of London. And then as soon as we get you know, some density of usage to give people the option to go door to door as well as posting, we'll continue to push out through the UK. I think by the end of the year, certainly much of the UK will be covered. Great. Well, best of luck with that. And that's all the questions I, I have today. But um, I'm sure we'll catch up. Um, maybe it will even find its way down to where, where we are in, in West Sussex eventually. We'll prioritise West Sussex. <laughs> so that's all the interviews we have for this episode. And thank you once again to all the interviewees. And thank you doubly for joining me for the Circular Economy special. Over the coming weeks, we'll be bringing you another edition of the Net Zero Business Podcast, this time taking a deep dive into Mighty's Net Zero strategy. And as we keep teasing, the Green Room will make its triumphant return, so watch this space. In the meantime, please do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, be that Google, SoundCloud or Spotify, and to check ed.net for more news, views and analysis. And more importantly, stay safe, stay supportive, and for God's sake, sanitise your stuff. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>